fresh back from junior high camp. Uh, drove back last night after last night's session. Your kids are alive and well. And we're worshiping Jesus last night when I left. So, um, good news. This morning's message uh, we've titled An Awkward Family Meal. An Awkward Family Meal. I- I'm pretty sure we've all been to an awkward family meal. And this morning we're going to take a look at Jesus' awkward family meal. Matthew chapter 26. Starting in verse 20, I'm going to be reading and teaching from the New American Standard Bible this morning. And when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who is betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup, and he had given thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after this, they sang a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of God. Church, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this moment where we can gather together. We confess now, God, our dependency on your Holy Spirit to explain these things to us. We depend on your Holy Spirit to create within us a conviction and a response. We pray, Lord, that today we would be changed by your word and we would leave from this place a more mature people. We ask this by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this text we're looking at is often called, probably in your Bible it's titled, The Last Supper. As this is Jesus' uh, final meal before the crucifixion, it's also the last Passover. Um, there's a lot going on in this text. And the ultimate reason for the incarnation of Jesus, the whole reason that God stepped out of heaven uh, is, is happening here. It's starting to be revealed here. We're just hours away from Jesus' death. So we're reaching the crescendo of God's redemptive plan. Uh, The climax of all of Scripture is is just right before us. Jesus has already gone and publicly confronted and rebuked and silenced the religious leaders of Israel. We've seen that they have murder in their heart, right? You see kind of this plot being set up. And they're looking for an opportunity to get at Jesus, to murder him, to kill him. But they're going to wait through the Passover. They don't want to raise any, uh, any craziness while so many people are in Jerusalem celebrating this high holiday. But then along comes Judas, right? Offering to betray Jesus. The unexpected gift for the Pharisees is the betrayal of, of Jesus by one of his insiders. And so here, sitting in the midst of this hatred and this plotting, this betrayal, these murderous plots even today, we see Jesus' generous love and we see Jesus' amazing eternal plan. 
And so we're in the midst of this, what we call the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. Now, this is just one week we've been taking a look at. However, we've been looking at this week for several months as a church because there's so much in there. There's a lot going on. We saw Jesus go into the temple and confront the hypocrisy of the entire religious system in Israel, physically throwing tables over um, and then confronting religious leaders right there in the temple during Passover. Jesus declared judgment then over Israel for their hard-heartedness toward God. He He does this out in front of a crowd. Then we see the religious leaders standing there in the temple plotting to kill Jesus. We've seen Judas abandon his friends and abandon his God and go and strike up a deal to betray Jesus. And then just a couple weeks ago, we we saw this woman worship extravagantly by anointing Jesus with expensive oil. And what we've really been looking at, uh, what we've been considering thematically these last few weeks is the value of Jesus. And and we've been asking this question as we've been examining these texts. We've been asking, is Jesus really worth it? Is he worth it? Is Jesus really worth living for? Is Jesus really worth sacrificing for? Is Jesus really better than my plans and my goals that I've set for myself? And so we looked at the story of this woman just a couple weeks ago worshiping Jesus by pouring out this extremely expensive oil upon him. And she literally pours out more than one year's worth of pay on Jesus as an act of worship, right? And then we see this beautiful picture of Jesus' disciples rushing around her and worshiping Jesus with her, right? Isn't that what happened? That's not what happened. The disciples look and they're like, wait a minute. She just blew like $80,000 dumping at us all over. We could have used that money in in a better way. They thought it was a waste. The disciples thought they knew a better way to allocate this valuable resource, right? Their plans and expectations were different than Jesus's. They were different than this woman. And this woman had the right idea. And so we see Jesus correct his disciples, and he receives this sacrifice, and he receives this worship. However, that night, there's something particular that happens. There's one disciple that doesn't take this rebuke from Jesus very well, right? And Judas sneaks off that evening, and he strikes up a deal to betray Jesus for just a few hundred bucks. And so we were, we were left, as we were sitting in this text, considering this juxtaposition between this woman and this disciple of Jesus. Is he worth everything, as the woman demonstrated, by pouring her life savings out on him, or is he worth a few hundred bucks, as Judas thought. And so we we've took a step last week again, and we saw that Jesus confirms that her response is the only right response to Jesus in light of the gospel. Here's Jesus preparing to completely pour himself out on a cross. And then here's this woman completely pouring out everything she has to worship Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of Christian worship. It's a right response to Jesus and that's why Jesus says everywhere the gospel is preached, her story's going to be told. And so today, we continue to look at, that's the setting. We continue to look at this setting and what, what lies ahead for Jesus and what lies ahead for his uh, followers. Because we're going to see just in the next, very quickly in the next couple of weeks, there's an upcoming betrayal. There's crazy rejection. Uh, there's premeditated murder, torture. There's predicted denials, right? Jesus predicts denials. This is the red carpet to the single most influential event in all of human history. We're, we're moving toward this event. It's setting everything up, exposing how all the pieces come together. 
exposes God's crazy plan to save his broken and rebellious people. And Jesus is intentional to not skip a step. So we're moving very systematically through this. And so as we look at today's text, we have to be very careful, and we need to, just a word of caution, to not approach these verses with a sense of, like, you know, man, I would have done so much better than them, right? I, I would have handled this differently. We hear that sort of prideful bragging in our culture a lot, right? You know, if I was there, I would have saved him. If I was there, I would have rushed in and saved everybody, right? But Pe- we, hear, we see that in Peter a lot in the New Testament. This sort of arrogance reveals an ignorance within us, an ignorance to the reality of our own heart. And so let's not be those people with this text today. As I was sitting with this text, uh, I found myself um, eventually, as the Holy Spirit got in there to that place that, that I so desperately need, need the Lord, I've identified myself with the most unsavory people in the story, to be totally honest with you. And I think that each of us might find ourselves among the weak and the broken in the story today. And listen, that's a good thing. I think that's, I think that's the right place to find ourselves as we look at these stories, especially as we look at today's story. Because that's right at the place where Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice. It's in our brokenness, it's in our heart of betrayal that God meets us. And so let's not be people who demonize Judas. Judas followed Jesus for three years. Judas Judas hugged Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He sat next to Jesus. He listened to Jesus teach. Uh, Judas was was there. He, He witnessed miracles. He, he followed Jesus. He, get, he abandoned a lot to follow Jesus. And we're followers, many of us, of Jesus as well. And think of the times that we've been tempted. Think of the times that you've been tempted to reject Jesus for some form of earthly gain. Think of how easy it is for us to forget about Jesus when we really, really want something. When we see something set before us that we really want, but we haven't kind of sorted it all out with our faith yet. We haven't sorted it all out with with prayer and with accountability, perhaps. And we just kind of charge ahead and betraying what what the caution and betraying the, the sound advice of the Word of God. We all have that potential within us. Remember how we're tempted sometimes to maybe fudge numbers or to, to speak in such a way to, to, to pitch something as more beneficial for us than perhaps it is in reality. There are very real ways, I believe, that each of us are only a moment away from choosing mammon over God, but by the grace of God. Now, Judas made a huge effort in his abandonment and betrayal of Jesus. This, this does kind of stand apart from the the quick little decisions we make in our heart. He clearly demonstrated through his actions what he worshipped. And it's clear that he didn't worship Jesus. He didn't worship this Messiah that came to earth in the way to fill biblical prophecy, in the way that Jesus taught, and in the way Jesus had planned to walk things out. I think probably that Judas worshipped the idea of Jesus. He worshipped the idea of a political revolutionary Messiah. I think Jesus excuse me, Judas worshipped the idea of Jesus helping Israel overthrow Roman rule, but Judas clearly didn't worship Jesus or trust Jesus' plans or trust Jesus' timing. He he was like, man, I've I've given three years of my life. Here we are sitting in this room. We just watched watched some gal destroy her life savings on Jesus. Like, where's this all going? This doesn't make any sense. Things aren't happening on my timetable. I'm going to kind of try to push things ahead. And so after striking his deal, 
This is the crazy thing, right? His, his, his thought process, his heart was far away from Jesus. Sells Jesus out. And then he returns back. He returns back to celebrate the Passover with Jesus. He comes back to the disciples. Think about that. He goes back to, to celebrate this, this, uh, this holiday with them. He goes back to worship Jesus as the disciples did. So he's planning to sit through this super awkward family dinner and pretend. He's planning on just sitting there with, with betrayal in his heart, with unrepentant sin in his heart, with, with the, the same sin of Adam and Eve, right? Where I'm not going to wait on the Lord's timing. I'm not going to submit to the Lord's best advice. I'm, I'm going to second-guess God and go with my gut kind of thing. And, and here he is. He's going to sit there and pretend. It's like going to a family meal where there's something super awkward, like you haven't seen your family in a while, right? And your little brother shows up, and he's got this neck tattoo that extends up onto his face, and you're like... Like, talk about anything but the tattoo. You know, like, just, it's like that, that moment where you're like, I could just imagine Judas sitting there. And there's a funny movie that was made about 30 years ago, Mel Brooks' movie, where they sh- he shows the last supper of Jesus. And Judas is this sweaty, nervous mess sitting there, you know, just like, oh, gosh, you know, don't look at me. And Jesus, Jesus looks over, he's like, Judas, pass the bitter herbs. And Judas is like, oh, God, you know, having a heart attack. Just imagine the tension in the room. Uh, with a heart of betrayal, having already sold him out, he comes back and, and is pretending. So there they are, Jesus and his dysfunctional family, celebrating this holiday meal. Now, what they're celebrating is the Passover. And the Passover is a festival and a feast that celebrated God's freeing his people from Egypt. Uh, that, was, that was covered in much more detail in last week's sermon, if you want to hear a little bit more about the Passover. But basically, Jews from all over would come to Jerusalem for the Passover to celebrate it. They would feast and they would celebrate all that God has done. And most of us know the story. It takes place in the book of Exodus. Uh, it's the story of Israel enslaved by Egypt. And the Exodus story is a story of God delivering his people from enslavement to Egypt. And God uh, goes in in Egypt, you know, and he, and he directs his people to, to bring a lamb and sacrifice the lamb and spread the blood on the doorpost. And the angel of death will, will pass over. That's where they get the word Passover. They'll pass over the houses that have the blood on the door. And so it's a picture of God responding to the faith of his people. It's a picture of God responding to the obedience of his people by passing over their home. And so from then on, from, from Moses' time on, every family in Israel was to celebrate the Passover feast every year to remember God's faithfulness. And so this is what Jesus and his disciples are doing on this day in Jerusalem, preparing the Passover and sitting at this table. Far from the disciples' minds would be the reality that this is actually the final Passover meal. This one Passover meal would forever change the Passover tradition. This is also perhaps the most awkward meal ever. (laughs) And so it says in verse 20, when evening came, Jesus is reclining at the table with his 12 disciples as they were eating. Okay, so they're probably about uh, halfway through the Passover. They probably would have drank the first cup and they would have done the sopping in the bowl and the bitter herbs. And they probably would have passed through this, the part with the second cup. And they, they would have been to the part probably where they're eating the lamb. If they're reclining and eating, that means that there's no like real teaching happening. They're kind of fellowshipping. And that's the part where they're, they're actually eating the lamb, the, the Passover lamb. And so they're just kind of reclining at the table, kicking back. And And here's the topic of conversation. Jesus goes, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. (laughs) 
little, little light talk for, for uh, dinner table, right? They say don't talk about politics. Well, what about personal betrayal? It says, Be, being deeply grieved, each of them began to say to him, surely it's not me, Lord. Imagine that. You got 12 friends around the table, and he's like, one of you is going to betray me. And all 12 of them are second-guessing themselves. Like, wait, is it me? Is it me? Like, so awkward. Like, it's, it's a crazy situation. Surely it's not I, Lord, each said. And Jesus answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to him by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he'd not been born. And then Judas finally speaks up, right? Sitting there heart-pounding, just like, uh, surely it's not I, Rabbi. And then Jesus is like, you've said it yourself. Man, you could cut the tension in that room with a knife. So interesting. But listen to the wording here. They're very specific. You know, the Bible's very specific. God's very specific about his word choice. And, and so it's important for us to look at individual words. The disciples, there are 11 of them there. And the 11 are like treating Jesus. They're saying, Master, was it I? Master, was it I? Notice how the 11, okay, there's 12, but there's 11 men sitting at the table. They weren't all going, wait, someone's going to betray. Oh, obviously it's Judas, right? Obviously it's him. See, that, that didn't happen. Judas didn't stick out. He probably wasn't that different from the other disciples. That's so sneaky. It's so sneaky how Judas' heart was able to become so far from God that he would betray him. But the other disciples, when they're confronted with this, this challenge from Jesus that he'd been betrayed by one of them, Judas was so sneaky that the other 11 weren't onto him. Isn't that crazy? It's also painful when someone who's that close to you, someone you think you know so well, turns out to be a fraud. And so initially studying this, I was pretty disappointed in the disciples. I expected more of them. I was like, really? Every one of you thinks that you might have been the one that betrayed Jesus? Every one of you? Like, you all thought you betrayed Jesus at some point. I get that Judas was evil, but I I would hope for a little more uh, from Jesus' disciples. See, it's like that with us, too, though. Once we've been brought to the table of the Lord, shouldn't, shouldn't we hope for more of ourselves as well. I was really convicted by this, this idea, because I want to aim higher than Judas in my life. I want my kids to be raised around people who aim a little higher than Judas uh, in their lives. And, And here's Jesus surrounded by these people who aren't that different from Judas. It's, it's a powerful picture. I believe that Judas didn't just spontaneously up and choose to betray Jesus. It wasn't this out-of-the-blue betrayal. I, I believe that there was a long road of doubt and a long road of hidden doubt that had led Judas to this point of betrayal. Judas may have walked and eaten and lived with Jesus, but he had gotten to the point where his heart was far from Jesus. And maybe Judas's expectations just weren't accurate. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, Maybe he thought Jesus' kingdom would come much differently than it was coming. Maybe Judas wanted Jesus to move faster. Maybe Judas was expecting and demanding, requiring in his heart, Jesus to be more of a political revolution 
area than he was. I see a lot of these same desires in our modern Christian culture. This desire for us to see more political change from, from Christian conservative groups or more like Jesus more in our political circles. It's, it's the same thing. Like Judas had that in his heart. And it probably wasn't necessarily a bad thing. He wanted good things to happen in Israel. But he was trying to make Jesus and creating expectations for Jesus as Messiah and deliverer and trying to shove it into a category where Jesus is saying, no, that's not where I'm going. My plan is different than that. Whatever it was, it was definitely not a heat-of-the-moment mistake. You see, that's how we tend to explain sin, right? Oh, I was caught up in the heat of the moment. But I know in my life that's, that's not true. Sin is always preceded by a wavering heart for Jesus, in my life anyway. And big sins in my life are always preceded by long seasons of faithlessness to Jesus. So the big sins that happen, yeah, they hurt people and they offend people, but I've been deeply offending God for a long season of life by the time I've gotten to that point of, of, of hurting others. These are usually long seasons of self-centeredness in my life. And we just look at how far Judas had fallen from Jesus. The disciples asked, it's not me, Lord. Right, again, the word, the word in the Bible, words are so important. He says, it's not me, Lord. That word Lord means master. Judas asks the question. He said, it's not me. Is it Rabbi? Well, the word rabbi means teacher. It doesn't mean master. It doesn't mean Lord. You see what's going on in Judas's heart? The other, the other 11 disciples maintain their humility and they maintain Jesus's authority by using the word Lord, by, by putting themselves under Jesus as their master. Judas, in a sense, is holding Jesus at arm's length as a mere teacher. This is an issue of the heart because Jesus is meant to be the Lord of our lives. He's not merely a good example. He's not just a good teacher. And when we think about Judas and we think about ourselves, we should look at the roads that we're traveling in our heart. There was a road in Judas's heart that he was traveling that was leading him away from Jesus. The, the, the other disciples were still submitting to Jesus as Lord, and they were like, wait, I want to be redirected. Every time my road moves this way, I, I, I want to be redirected. And they're not like, Master, am I, am I off here? Am I off here? Judas is like, you know, off over here. He's like, whoa, hey, is it me, teacher? Like, kind of half-heartedly. See, the places where we've set Jesus aside as simply a teacher, as simply good advice, rather than Lord and Master, those are, those are the division points in our heart. Paul writes to young Timothy, uh, and he, he warns him about these dangerous, divided roads in our heart. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, Flee from your youthful lusts. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See, Paul would caution us to flee from the impure avenues we travel in our heart. Flee, like abandon them and run from them. He's saying go run with people who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And so here's Jesus, surrounded by his closest friends, right? These 12 men. And, and what, a, what an awkward moment. In the midst of betrayal, and in the midst of all 11 of them, considering betrayal. Jesus is now going to do something that will change the course of history. Change the course of history for us, for sure. He's about to hold up a representation of his body and his blood. And he meets them right there with their divided hearts. And he meets them with the gospel. Jesus is now going to offer true communion with him. 
right in the midst of their, their weird, divided hearts. And this true communion with Jesus leads to freedom. See, Jesus continues leading the Passover dinner, forever changing Passover, instituting a new memorial for a new covenant. This takes place right in, right in the same story, right around the same dinner table with the same men sitting around. Look at verse 26. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread, right? So the whole Judas thing had just kind of flown, and I guess they just started eating again. <laughs> Jesus grabs some bread, and he blesses it, and then he breaks it into pieces, and he gives it to the disciples, saying, take and eat this, for it's my body. And then he takes a cup of wine, gives thanks to God for it, and he gives it to them, and he says, each of you drink from this, for this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. See, Jesus gives the disciples a chance to find freedom from their doubtful hearts. Jesus holds up some bread and a cup, and he offers the chance to experience freedom right there in the midst of their brokenness, right there in the midst of their confusion. And just like that with us today, in the modern church, communion stands in that same place between a, a divided and broken and sinful people and a holy God. We have a chance to address these things through the gospel, through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now the Bible says a lot about examining our hearts as we take communion. This, this new feast that Jesus introduces this night. We're to examine our hearts. We ask, is there any avenue that I'm going down that leads to betrayal? Is there any way I'm betraying Jesus in my heart? Is there any rebellious road I'm headed down? Is there any path I'm blazing apart from God? Or in light of what Jesus has done for me, is there anything I need to forsake? Are there things I need to flee from, as the Apostle Paul says? Uh, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth very specifically about communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, he's, he's talking about uh, the sacrament of communion in the church. He says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. See, communion is to be this, this examination of ourselves and kind of a, a resetting of our lives. We're not to go too far without holding something tangible in our hands that, that brings us to a place of, of true remembrance of the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. And, and we're to reset our heart. We're to consider the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. And we're to abandon the roads that lead to betrayal and head on, new, on different trajectories. Because we realize that Christ died so we may be forgiven of sin. Right? Christ didn't die so that we could have permission to commit more sin. So communion stands in a place of remembering what Christ did and abandoning, forsaking our sin. Communion is not just a time of self-reflection and repentance. It's also a time to remember and rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. Communion is worship. We worship God by remembering and sitting in the brutal reality of the cross. There's a, there's a severity to our sin that made the brutality of the cross necessary. And it's good for us to kind of sit in that place considering the weightiness of the sacrifice that was necessary to deal with my heart of betrayal, with my heart of abandonment, with my heart of sin, with my divided roads. Jesus, Jesus had to go forsake everything. Now it would be easy for us 
as we read through this text and, and looking at Judas and the shameful way that he came back and sat there and then was pointed out, it's easy for us to demonize Judas and to blame him for sending Jesus to the cross. Yeah, that, that's easy. That's happened for centuries. But listen, Judas' betrayal isn't what sent Jesus to the cross. Jesus went to the cross because of my sin. Jesus went to the cross because of your sin. It wasn't Judas that sent Jesus to the cross. I put Jesus on the cross. Jesus died on the cross to forgive me. The Bible says that he died on the cross because he loves us. There was a purpose and a reason for the cross that extends far beyond the betrayal of Judas. And so the cross of Jesus is good news for us. And the timing of communion, like just thinking about, trying to get your head around this, as they're sitting at that table, the timing that Jesus has is incredible. Because this good news that Jesus is, is introducing his disciples to, it comes right after this whole awkward moment with Judas. And everyone at that table knew that in them was this Judas tendency. And I think it's, it's good for us to consider that. Where in my heart, God, do I have this Judas tendency? This tendency to forsake God for gain in my own life. This, this tendency to kind of hide from God in my own ways and have secret plans and then come back in on a Sunday morning or come back in uh, to communion and, and try to pretend like everything is, is, is great. Probably they all felt guilty sitting there looking at Jesus. They probably all felt helpless. And Jesus responds immediately. He doesn't run them through this gauntlet. He doesn't make them feel shame. He doesn't send them to their room to think about their crimes and let the heaviness of what they had done rest upon them and fall upon them. He responds immediately. And he says, as he holds up the bread and the cup, he is saying, I'm going to be broken for you. My blood is going to be spilled for you. Do you see that? Jesus is willing and able to do something about the heart issues that we have. And he immediately offers this reprieve. The good news about God's love in Christ is bigger than the bad news of our sin. And Jesus is like itching to introduce that to his disciples. And man, if if you're going to remember one thing this morning, remember that the good news of God's love in Christ is bigger than the bad news of your sin. Because right when these disciples were starting to feel the weight of their own sin and, and the confusion swirling in the room around that whole betrayal thing, Jesus steps in and shines the light of deliverance by offering the cup and the bread. Now at this Passover meal, Jesus is saying what he's, what he's saying to us now all throughout all of history, what he was saying to his disciples in that moment is, I am the Passover lamb who will be slain for your freedom from sin. I am the ultimate Passover lamb. And in this moment, Jesus forever changes the Passover feast. It's forever changed. Communion is the stake in the ground that reminds the Christian of the main thing, the core of our faith, which is the cross of Jesus Christ, the, the death of Christ. Every Christian is to take communion as an act of worship. And communion is where we hold the physically broken bread, representing the broken body of Jesus. And we remember the reality and the actuality of the cross. We remember and we choose to linger on his broken body. And we remember in that moment that Jesus is the bread of life. And in the same way as we hold the cup and we see the, we see the, uh, the, the staininess of the, of the juice, of the grape juice inside, we remember the blood that was spilled for the forgiveness of sins. Our sin isn't merely covered over for a while 
right? We're not just merely passed over by God like they celebrated in Passover. This is a true and a real forgiveness of sins. Our, the, the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, has come and he offers new life, not just a covered old life. Communion speaks many things to the Christian. It speaks of God's grace. It speaks of God's love. It speaks of God's pursuit of us. It speaks of God's binding covenant with us. And it's a reminder of who Christ is and who we are in Christ. Communion is the guarantee of things to come. There's a lot going on. And so communion, as we remember communion and, and or remember what the Bible shows us of communion, we remember the purpose of communion. We remember that communion is intimacy made possible through sacrifice. There's a very real sacrifice that makes intimacy with God possible. It's possible through Jesus' sacrifice. And church, may we, may we never take communion lightly. It's not some just weird uh, Sunday snack or some rote ritual that we do every week. Communion serves as real spiritual nourishment, reminding us of the nourishment Christ provides and sustains us through his death on the cross. This is why we examine ourselves at the Lord's table. We consider ways that we might be hiding betrayal in our hearts. We consider those alternate avenues that might be going on in our hearts. Just as Jesus doesn't let Judas's heart of betrayal slide, he revealed the heart of sin. And so there at that first communion, we see that happening at the table. And here today, as we receive communion, as we take communion and partake, we do the same thing. We allow the Lord to search our hearts. Now, if you're not a Christian, communion's not for you. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to consider this offer from Jesus today. Uh, the freedom and the forgiveness from sin that Jesus offers. See, Jesus died a death that we all deserve because of our sin. And Jesus defeated death by rising again. So the offer for us this morning, and the offer for you this morning, is to put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and for salvation. God doesn't call us, it's not a call to just blind faith, like, well, gosh, I'm at a point where I'll just trust in anything. God's not calling us just to some blind faith. God is calling us, as he does, Jesus does all throughout the, his ministry, he doesn't call us to blindly follow him. He calls us to consider the faith of the blind men who followed him. Other people who couldn't see Jesus, but put their faith and their trust in Jesus and were healed and whose lives were changed. Jesus died a death that we deserve. The Apostle Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians is a stern warning for us all. And so today we're going to partake of communion. And as we do, we're going to be examining our hearts we don't approach communion with hearts of rebellion. We receive the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus as a forgiven people. Listen, Christian, today is the day if you've been holding on to something, you've been wondering, is today the day I'm supposed to deal with this thing? Is today the day I'm supposed to tell that person about this one thing that I've been hiding? Is today the day that that pressure has been building on me for so long? Is the day that God wants to lift that off of me? Is today the day that I get to be a real person around other people and have to stop faking it around the dinner table? I'm telling you, yes, today is that day. Jesus has gathered us to his table like he does the disciples. He's encouraging us to examine our hearts, to do this beautiful work, to see our need for a Savior. The disciples in that moment, they saw more clearly than ever their need for a Savior. We're a broken people, and we find ourselves at the best place with the Lord when we see ourselves in our brokenness and in our complete need and dependence upon God. 
So this morning, Jesus invites you to feast on the bread of life. Communion is a time to reflect on God's amazing love. And so we're going to receive this all together. I'm going to invite the worship team up and the ushers to come forward. This is different than we usually do. So um, we've got these odd little packets that have the cracker and the juice all contained in one. Don't open them yet. We're going to all do it together. And we're going to take communion together, and I'll kind of lead you through that. But let's just pass those out and take packets. And as we worship the Lord through communion, um, preparing for that, I want to share a quote from D.A. Carson. He said this, As Jesus' death was unique, so was his anguish. Therefore, our best response to it is hushed worship. And so we come to God as we approach the table of the Lord. We come to God not with many words, not with these big grand ideas, not with this theological thing happening. We come to God in our brokenness, like the disciples that evening sitting around the table. We come to God recognizing our need for a Savior. And so, if you'll open up your top little thing there and and pull out the, there should be a, a version of bread in there. Jesus on this night, there would have been unleavened bread at this feast anyway. There's no leaven in the bread because they wouldn't have had time to let yeast rise when they were just going to hightail it out of Egypt, right? When God was bringing his people out of Egypt. And so at the Passover feast, there's no leaven in the bread. It's, it's this dry bread that's just made in a hurry, made on a hot rock in the desert, so to speak. And so Jesus held the bread out and he broke it. And I want just, to, just to feel it and just to kind of participate in the physicality of it as Jesus intended. Let's, let's feel that, the breaking of the bread. This is a, a picture of, of Jesus' broken body on the cross. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. This is a body that Jesus was ready to abandon for our benefit, for our forgiveness, for our new life, and for his glory, perfectly demonstrating and picturing for us the love of the Father. It says that Jesus blessed the bread. So, Father God, we thank you and we praise you for this bread. God, we thank you for what it represents. Thank you for the sacrifice, the broken body of Jesus, the body that was slain and beaten and mocked and scorned and humiliated. That happened one time in history so that it doesn't happen for us. We recognize and say thank you for the cross. And Jesus said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Jesus took a cup. He held it up to his disciples. He says, this is my blood. It's going to be spilled for you. He's telling them. He's looking his friends in the eyes. And he's saying, I'm, I, I'm going to do this as an act of love, as an act of mercy. Sinless. Going to the cross 
for the sinful. It's an unfair exchange. It's an unwise exchange. It's an unreasonable exchange. The offense that Judas took to the woman pouring the perfume out is nothing compared to the offense he would have taken in his divided heart over Jesus laying his perfect life down for a bunch of sinners. Yet that's what he did. And so now, God, we thank you for the cup. We thank you for what it represents, Lord, the spilled blood of Jesus. We take a moment, Lord, as we reflect on the cross. We examine our hearts, Lord, and we offer to you the places where we're divided, the places where we're deviated. Thank you for the spilled blood of Jesus. A blood that doesn't cover sin, it's a blood that washes sin away. Jesus said, take and drink each of you. Father, we thank you for the intimacy that we can have with you because of the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you for communion that doesn't just remind us. It allows us to rest in and sit in the physicality of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We love you, Lord. We thank you for making us a brand new people in Christ. We offer this worship to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. The buckets are going to be passed around. You can put your your waste in them as they go by.